Good morning, Riverside. It's great to see you all here today. As Douglas mentioned, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, an awesome opportunity for me to be able to share with you today God's Word as we continue in this Hebrew series, as he mentioned, the home stretch. If you're a visitor today or you're newer to the church, I've been gone for the last couple of weeks, and so if you've slipped in and I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'll be in the lounge right afterwards. would love to uh, have that opportunity to get to uh, meet you, put a name and a face together, and that's uh, one of my top priorities every week is to meet some of our new folks that are coming in so that you can begin to have an understanding of who we are and we can get the opportunity uh, to get to know who you are as well. And I want to welcome those of you who are listening by podcast as well. And I want to encourage you all here uh, at the Mills location to turn in your Riverside apps to the live event section there. You can open up your phone or your tablet and follow along there. There are also some notes that you'll find in your bulletins. You can always take a look there uh, and follow along, maybe jot some things down that the Lord might have to say to you. If you are newer to the church or this is your first weekend with us, again, we're in this series in a New Testament book that was written by um, one of those first people that were following Jesus. We're not sure. There's three or four people that might be the author of this particular book, but he's writing to a group of people who have found faith in Christ, but they're coming from a Jewish background, and so they were struggling to apply uh, this new life in Christ and kind of not follow that Old Testament law and the sacrificial system that they, were, that they had grown up with. And so each week we've been talking about how Jesus brings change to following for them and certainly for us today. And Hebrews chapter 7 is going to be a very, very unique text that perhaps you've never read before. It's some of the characters that we're going to talk about. Maybe you've never heard of them before. So I'm going to do my best to take some really, really deep stuff and make it chewable for us all this morning. Uh, As I've been thinking about this time together, really my hope and my prayer is that you would draw close to God through this time. This is kind of the thrust of Hebrews chapter 7 is that we would, whatever it takes, we would draw close to God. He's already here to meet with us and he's with us each day no matter where you find yourself throughout the week and throughout the the day of each day of each week. Uh, And he's here to meet with us this morning. So I hope that you'll have the clarity of heart and mind to be able to hear from him as we read through these verses. As I've been thinking about this message and the time away that we had on vacation, I've been thinking a lot, as we're going to see here today, about my family tree, about my lineage and my heritage, my genealogy. It was one of the things that uh, in the last few years of my mother's life, she got really interested in and she did a lot of research and we know a lot more about her side of the family, a lot more we've gone back uh, on her side. We do know a few things about the Canard um, line as well. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little bit about that this morning as we get going. But one of the things that we did, we, my wife and I went down to Nashville uh, for uh, our vacation for a few days and we saw that place. How many been to Nashville? Anybody else in the room here? It was 100 and 101 the two days we were there and I was glad to live in Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, but it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. And then we went to go pick our, our kids were at a camp in Ohio. So we left Nashville and we're headed up. And on the way there, we took about an hour, hour and a half detour to my dad's uh, alma mater in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, just outside of Lexington, Kentucky. He graduated from Asbury University. And then right across the street was Asbury Theological Seminary. And so I have heard about Asbury for 43 years of my life. Every time my parents would talk about it, it was the early years of their relationship. They got married and he was in, he was in college there and then he was in seminary there. And the, the Holy Spirit did some amazing things at Asbury in the late 60s, right? Uh, as my dad was in the seminary years and God did some powerful, powerful things. Very similar 
to Pentecost in the book of Acts, and we read the stories there. And so I got to go into the place where my dad graduated. He had his senior recital there, and I got to stand up on uh, the stage and uh, be there on the platform. Where my, and it was a very, very cool time to be able to ke- connect to my dad's history and my mom's history there. And it got me to thinking a lot about our own family tree and the journey that we've had three brothers actually came over, uh, three Canard brothers came over uh, to the United States for the first time, and uh, they came from Scotland, and uh, there's actually, uh, they, they each had a different spelling of their name when they got here to, to Ellis Island, they, they had the different names and they spread them out, but we come from one of those brothers, and there's actually a Canard castle still in Scotland, if we could take a look at a couple of those pictures there. Um, I sure wish that I had some right to all of that, but uh, apparently that's long gone in my family tree. There's actually a Canard Castle that you can see. My dad has a book that has some of that stuff there in it, and uh, it's pretty cool. So thinking about your own family tree uh, and, your, and how far back you know your own family tree, how many generations you know back and, and your genealogy and the experience of your own family tree, and think about for just a moment as you ponder that how close you are with your family. Maybe it's your immediate family, maybe it's an extended family. Uh, how, how many of you know like five or ten generations back? Let me see your hands here. Anybody in the room know? You've done some research? Okay, you know a ways back. All right, well, if any of you um, were servants to the Canard family in uh, Scotland, just come talk to me. We'll, we'll talk afterwards. Now, uh, I love this idea of figuring out kind of where your family tree is. And for the days of the writer of Hebrews, knowing your genealogy was a very important thing, especially as it relates to the priesthood. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. The character that we're going to study today, we don't know anything about his family tree. And so that's going to be very interesting as we, as we play into this. But I want to encourage you to uh, look at uh, Hebrews chapter 7 as we walk through this today. And this character that we're going to talk about is actually mentioned three times in scriptures. And we put the notes in your notes and we'll put up on the screen that the first time is in Genesis chapter 14. And then we go for about a thousand years and David, King David mentions him in a prophetic sense referring to the Messiah. And then, that, and then about another thousand years goes by and now we have the writer of Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7. We've mentioned him a little bit here or there, but we're really going to dive into his story today. And uh, this guy is ultimately going to point us to Jesus. That's where our focus is going to be. But our story, before we get to our mystery guy, our story begins with Abraham. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. God made a promise and a covenant to this guy, Abraham. His name was Abram at the beginning. And he is going to eventually have children and grandchildren. And the whole of the nation of Israel is going to come from this guy, Abraham. But before all of that occurs, Abraham was hanging out with his nephew, and his nephew's name was Lot. Now, they lived in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah at the time, and four kings are going to come in. We're going to pick up this story in Genesis 14, but four kings come into Abram's area. They uh, raid the area, and Abram's not around at the time, but Lot and his family get captured, and they get taken away as captives. Well, Abram comes back in, and he hears about this, 
And he calls all hands on deck to go and to rescue and to free Lot and his family. And he goes and he fights the battle and he accomplishes just that. He manages to free Lot and his family and he brings them all back with the spoils of war. And on his way back, he encounters our mystery man. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 14, if you want to follow along there. It says that when Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born in to his household. For those of us who like round numbers, I'd prefer that he'd have said 320, but unfortunately he didn't. So we're going with 318. Then he pursued the army until he caught up with them. He divided his men and attacked during the night. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. After Abram returned from his victory, here's our mystery guy. His name is Melchizedek. How many of you, that's the first time you've heard that name, Melchizedek? Just be honest. It's okay. We're in church. Don't lie before God. Okay. So let's practice together. Melchizedek. Can we say it on three? One, two, three. Melchizedek. One more time with a little smile. One, two, three. Melchizedek. Your assignment from church today is to figure out in an everyday conversation this week how to throw Melchizedek into a sentence. All right? Get that done and you'll be all right. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek, notice this, he blessed Abram with, with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. In other words, uh, Abram's on his way back. He encounters this king and this priest, and this guy Melchizedek blesses Abram, the father of the nation of Israel, before he's the father of the nation of Israel, but he puts his blessing upon him and he says, hey, Abraham, remember, as you're coming back from this victory, God is the one who blessed you and God is the one who fought for you. So keep that in mind, Abram, before you think you're too hot special. God did all of this for you. God is always the one who is sovereignly choosing and sovereignly blessing and sovereignly helping us throughout the course of our life. Now notice Abram's response. Very interesting. Abram gave Melchizedek a what? A tenth of all the goods he had recovered. In other words, he tithed to this Melchizedek guy. And what, what Douglas was just talking about, about this moment that we just had in the service where we gave or we, where we gave back to God, this is actually a long time before the law ever came. And so as believers, we see here that, yes, in the, in the Old Testament law with Moses and that whole thing, that the tenth, that the tithe was commanded during that time, but this is well before that. And so uh, we see that God uh, blessed Abraham and his natural response was giving back to that. So, Melchizedek, not a Jew. Remember, the Jewish people did not exist yet. Abraham had not yet had a son. But here's this guy, Melchizedek, that comes into this story, and we don't know who his parents were. We don't know who his family of origin was. The Old Testament just simply does not record those details for us. But we do know a ton about his priesthood because of what we read in the story in Genesis, because of what David mentions in Psalm 110, and because of what Hebrews chapter 7 has to say to us. And I want to help you to understand this Melchizedek guy because it's going to have huge implications for what the writer of Hebrews 7, and then we'll apply this to our own lives. So what we're going to do is, rather than trying to read through Hebrews 7 verses 4 through 14, 
where really this is unpacked. I've tried to make this as easy for us to understand, but I want to encourage you to go through and read it on your own this week. Take the notes, go back home, read through that, and begin to understand that for yourself. But for those of you who are visual, I put together a little diagram to try to help you to understand exactly what it is that's going on here in Hebrews 7 as it relates to who Melchizedek was. And we're going to start with Abraham. So what he's going to do in these next few verses in Hebrews 7 is he's going to unpack why Melchizedek and his priesthood is better than the Old Testament law and the Old Testament priesthood. And he does that by starting off with Abraham. And you'll see in your notes there and on the screen that Abraham had a son. What was Abraham's son's name? Isaac. Isaac had 12 children. Now, of those 12, two of them are on that little chart there. You'll see one is Levi and the other is Judah. Levi is one of the sons, and we, from Levi's line, we get the Levitical priesthood. It is through Levi's genealogy, through Levi's line, that we get our high priests and our priests in Jesus' day. Now, what happened was, in in Levi's line, you'll see that eventually Moses was born, and Moses was a part of the tribe of Levi, and then his brother was named Aaron. And so Aaron's line was the line that was specifically chosen for the priesthood. So genealogy was incredibly important. If If you were a priest, you had to prove that your line was not only from the tribe of Levi, but you were also specifically of the line of Aaron. And so it's from Aaron that we get all of the high priests, Caiaphas in Jesus' day, Annas before him, were all uh, Levites, and they were all from the Aaronic priesthood. That's another word you've probably not heard before, the Aaronic priesthood. That means simply from the line of Aaron. So you get the Levites and the Levite tribe, and then on the other side, you got Judah. Judah was also another son of Isaac, and Judah in his line were where the kings came from, or at least many, many of the kings. You have King David, you have King Solomon, and then eventually you have Jesus who comes from the tribe of Judah. So if you're not thoroughly bored yet, I got another diagram. Are, we, are you with me? Come on, all right? Okay, we're doing all right. Okay, so let's show the next one here. Now, this shows from Hebrews chapter 7 and Genesis 14 how much better uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek is versus this Arianic or the Aaronic uh, priesthood. So you're going to see there in Genesis chapter 14 and in Hebrews 7, he refers to Melchizedek as priest of God most high. He was also the king of Salem. Now, Salem was the site that eventually, once the Jewish nation was established, once David was the king, Jerusalem became the capital. But it wasn't called Jerusalem first. It was called Salem, and it means peace. And so he was the king of peace. And so you'll see there in that diagram that he is priest of God most high. So the author of Uh, the writer of Hebrews makes this argument. He says that the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than Aaron's priesthood because, first of all, it's universal, not just national. So the the people, the, the Levites that were priests, they were unique only to the nation of Israel. They were priests only to the people who were the Jewish nation. 
They were not priests to everybody else. God revealed himself as Jehovah or as Yahweh, and it was specific to the nation of Israel. That was how he revealed himself. You have names that people call you and different things. It might be dad, it might be son, it might be mom or daughter, it might be your name, it might be a nickname. Well, God had a whole bunch of different ways for him to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And so in this particular situation, he says to the nation of Israel, I'm Yahweh, I'm Jehovah. But in this case, what it says about Melchizedek is that he's El Elyon, and that means he's God Most High, and that means he's not just specific to the nation of Israel. In fact, the nation of Israel didn't even exist yet. So when it says that he is priest of God Most High, that means he was the universal priest in the sense that he was not ministering to just one people group. He goes on there, says that he was also not only priest of God Most High, he was universal, he was royal, he was, a, he was also a king. So in the tribe of Levi, they were not the kings, they were only the priests. They were submitted to the kings, but this guy is both royal and he's both priest, both. He's also righteous and peaceful. His is a personal, not a hereditary priesthood. In other words, it was not based on his lineage. He did not come from Aaron because Aaron did not yet even exist. God specifically chose Melchizedek to be a high priest. It was personal, not hereditary. And then last but not least, it's eternal, not temporary. And what he's basically saying is he's using the idea that, hey, we don't know where Melchizedek came from and we have no record of his death. So he is applying that story to the idea that it's an eternal priesthood. And he's going to connect all these dots to Jesus as we look through this. So what you see is that his priesthood is not only uh, better than Aaron's priesthood in all of those ways, but what we're going to also see is that Jesus' priesthood blows Melchizedek's out of the water. That's where he's headed in all of this. So it says in Hebrews uh, chapter seven, uh, 7 and verse 17, he's going to quote Psalm 110, but look at Psalm 110 here. This is David who is uh, prophesying in a sense. He's writing a thousand years after Melchizedek and he's talking about the Messiah. And here's what he says. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You, meaning the Messiah, we know it as him as Jesus. You are a priest, what's it say? Forever in the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, we're going to see that in just a minute. Then it goes on in verse 3 of chapter 7. He, meaning Melchizedek, remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. So Jesus' lineage, what he's saying here is Jesus' lineage is not traced to Aaron, and it is not traced to Levi, but to Judah. And even though Jesus was God's own son, he was not qualified for the Levitical priesthood. So as far as his priesthood was concerned, he had no priestly genealogy. He didn't need it. He was chosen because of his personal worth, his quality because of who he was, not because of where he came from. Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, the writer says. His priesthood was universal. It's royal. It's righteous. It's peaceful. It's personal and it's eternal. Notice what he says in verses 16 and 17 there. I'll put it up on the screen. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power, notice this, the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out. Now he's referring to to, to 110 and verse 4. When he prophesied, Jesus, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what does all of this mean for you and for me? Great history lesson, and now you know who Melchizedek was. 
What this means, what we see here in these notes, and we put it in your notes, is that being close to God doesn't come because you come from the right family. It doesn't happen just because you come from the right family. And for some of us, that's really good news. We know the heritage. We know the lineage. We look at ourselves. We, you know, some of us don't even know where we come from. And some of us look at other people who are following Jesus and we say, well, they've got it because of their right family. They came from the right background. Or, if, you know, God can't possibly use me because of this background or because of this experience or because my parents weren't this. Or, and, and for others of us, that could be a little disconcerting because we've been banking on the fact that it's all about our lineage. It's about where we come from. Jesus wasn't chosen because of his line. He was chosen because of who he was, because of his personal worth. And God is still in the business of choosing you and me, not based on our line, not based on our pedigree, not based on our family tree, but based on our personal worth as people. And you can be close to your heavenly father, whether or not you come from the right background or not. And that's good news for you and me today. He goes on in verses 18 and 19, and he says, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now, notice this, we have confidence in a better hope. In other words, it's not about our lineage, there's something better. And it's not about the law, there's something better. Through which, notice this, we draw near to God. How do we get close to God? That's what we're going to talk about in the remainder of our time together. And it's what these verses are going to tell us is that being close to our Heavenly Father doesn't happen by keeping a certain list of rules, by following a certain list of do's and don'ts. It's more than that. It's so much more than that. Notice, I love how Eugene uh, Peterson puts it in verses 18 and 19 in the message paraphrase. The former way of doing things, a system of commandments that never worked out the way that it was supposed to, was set aside. The law brought nothing to maturity. Another way, Jesus, a way that does work, that brings us right into the presence of God, that was put in its place. So what does it mean for you and I to be close to God. How do we get close to God? If it's not about coming from the right background and it's not about a list of do's and don'ts and rites and rituals and enough you know, spiritual calisthenics, what is it all about? When we think about this whole idea of a family tree and a genealogy that we're talking about here, coming from the right place, it's interesting to note that Jesus' brother James actually answers that question for us. Now think about this for just a minute. How many of you have siblings? Let me see your hands. Okay? What would it take for you to believe that your brother or that your sister was God? <laughs> I mean, my sister would have no problem with that, of course, but... So here's, here's James who has God as his brother, growing up together. Talk about having the opportunity to be close to God every single day and totally missing out on it until the death and the resurrection of Christ. 
It wasn't until after that that we see James buying into Jesus as God. But again, if your sister or if your brother could be dead for days and pull off their own resurrection, chances are you might have a different opinion of them, and that's exactly what happened to James. And so James says, you know what? I missed it along the way. I wasn't close as I should have been. I missed that. I, not that I, you know, I missed it. And now he says, hey, here's some ways that you can be close. It's not based on your family. It's not based on the law. Here's what he says, that we can be close to God. Notice what he says. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Being close to God begins with submission. His way before your way. It really doesn't work any other way. You kind of have to start with submission. If you kind of want to come and be close to God on your own terms, not going to work too well, just be honest with you. You got to have that initial submission to him. He goes on and he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, when we're close to God, we have that power, that ability to resist that temptation, to resist that internal desire that we all have, that we all struggle with, the sin, to make mistakes, to choose the unwise decisions. Come near. Notice what he says. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Here's how we do that. We wash our hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's a description of repentance. That's a description of us agreeing with our Heavenly Father that we are sinners, that we have made mistakes, that we want our own way more than we want our Heavenly Father's way, that we take matters into our hands, that we think things, that we do things that separate us from God. And so he says, change your mind about that. Agree with your Heavenly Father. Repent over that. And then he says, he ends it with, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I imagine the post-resurrection conversation. It's not recorded, but I just imagine what it must have been like between Jesus and James. Hey, bro, sorry I didn't believe in you. Can I still follow you? You're kind of like God, and I think that'd really be awesome. Yeah, yeah, you can, bro. Let's do this thing together. He humbled himself. He submitted himself. Imagine full devotion to your sibling. Imagine what that would be like, but that's exactly what happens in their relationship. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says about how we even have access to this creator. Uh, uh, Verse 22 of Hebrews 7 says, Jesus is the one, notice this, who, what's that next word there? Guarantees, a fascinating word. We're going to unpack that in just a minute. Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. In other words, it's not about my genealogy. It's not about my family tree. It's not about my pedigree. It's not about keeping a set of lists and, and do's and don'ts and rules. There's something so much better, and Jesus offers us that better hope. He is the anchor for our souls, we learned last week, and he is the one who guarantees this better way, this better covenant. Now, this term for guarantee was used in business documents, in, in script out uh, extra-biblical texts. It's used in business documents for a deposit, for a security, guaranteeing that a person would follow through on their word or on their obligation. Now, what you need to understand is that the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, the law and everything in it was established with a mediator, but not with a guarantee that the people would fulfill their undertaking. 
So in the Old Testament way of thinking, in the Old Testament way of doing it, God said, I will mediate. I promise on my end that I will do my part. But guess what? Did the Old Testament people do their part? No, absolutely not. Every book in the Old Testament talks about how they did their own thing. They went their own way. They took matters into their own hands. They forgot who God was. They didn't pass their faith on down to the generations as they should have. And so they got into a mess time and time and time again. But he says here that Jesus is the guarantor. He is the one who is still guaranteeing. And his guarantee goes both directions. So he says here in this text that Jesus is the guarantor to us that our heavenly father is still going to keep his part of the deal. He is going to forgive us. He is going to offer us grace and peace and mercy and his love. Jesus says, guys, I guarantee you, me and my heavenly father, we are all in. But the difference in this one is that he is also looking at his heavenly father and he's saying, father, all who are in me, are with me, and I've got them covered. I guarantee that they are in me, and they are with me, and we'll hold up in our end. Because of me, they'll hold up their end of the bargain. He is the guarantor. He is so much better. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you thought Aaron and his great Levitical priesthood was awesome, it, wasn't, it didn't hold a candle till Melchizedek, and Melchizedek doesn't hold a candle to Jesus because only Jesus could be our guarantor on both sides. So being close to our Heavenly Father, being close to God is possible because of what Jesus did on our behalf. So if you're sitting there today and you're wondering, man, what, what, did, what did Jesus do for you? The writer wanted you to know that. And so we're going to spend just these last few minutes looking at verses 24 through 28. And as I get ready to read this, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. We're going to take some time in just a few minutes to respond. But I want to walk you through these verses because they're powerful. And I don't want you to get distracted by the team as they're coming. Don't, don't pay attention to them. Pay attention to this text and let the Holy Spirit say some stuff to you. So worship team, come on up. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 24, Hebrews chapter 7. Here's a description of what Jesus did on our behalf. Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those. He's in the business then and he's still in the business of saving people who need rescued. You and me. To save those who come to God Notice, through him. It's not your lineage. It's not your heritage. It's not your family tree. It's not your, your keeping of the Old Testament law. It's not how high you can jump or how low you can duck. It's not how self-abasing you are. It is coming to faith through him. He lives forever. And what is he doing? It says to intercede. Our high priest is standing in the gap for us. He is cheering for us. He is pulling for us. 
When you're in your workplace and the temptation is there, when you're at home and the temptation is there, when you're out on the street and the temptation is there, whatever it might be, your heavenly father through Jesus is interceding. He's saying, I'm pulling for them. I want to believe the best. I want them to make the right choices and the right decisions. He's interceding with God on our behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and he is blameless and he is unstained by sin. Notice this, he has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. The scripture says elsewhere that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. He stands alone as the one that we follow. Unlike those other high priests. So he's talking about Aaron's line and all the high priests before Aaron and since Aaron. Unlike them, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus, he did this once and for all when he, noticed this, he offered himself. Not a lamb, not a bull, not a ram, not something else. He offered himself as the sacrifice for people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. In other words, they were failures, they were mess-ups, they were foul-ups, and they died. No eternal priesthood for them. They came and they went. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Our priest is holy, without any pollution. He's blameless, he's innocent, he is without evil, without malice. He's unstained, he's undefiled. He's free from contamination and set apart. He is without sin. He is permanent and he is our ultimate authority for life. Not me, not Bill and not anybody who stands on this stage or in Oakmont, we follow always and forever one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my challenge for us today is to be close to God through Jesus. Not through your past history, your family tree, or through keeping laws, keeping a set of rites and rituals, but through Jesus staying connected to him, submitting yourself to him, humbling yourself to him, offering yourself to him each day. And when you spend the entirety of your life walking with Jesus, you will find that at the end of your life on the home stretch, you will be close to your heavenly father. As the team just plays softly behind me here for these next few moments, I want to ask you today, are you close to God? He hasn't gone anywhere. He wants you to be close to him. You determine how close you are by how you spend each day. The decisions that you make, the time that you spend with your heavenly father. This past week, my dad sent me a text that was very special to me. I, I, uh, in our, in our family, one of the things we do is we pay attention not only to actual birthdays when you were born physically, but we pay attention to spiritual birthdays. And it was this last week in 1977, 38 years ago, that I made the decision to follow Jesus. And I gave my heart 
to Christ and I asked him to be my high priest and I asked him to save me and I submitted myself and I humbled myself and I agreed with him over my, my sin. I was only five years old, but I got it. I understood. I was a pretty messed up little kid. <laughs> I knew I needed a savior. And that's how you begin to get close to God. You begin to get close to Jesus by accepting that salvation that he offers. Accepting that gift by faith entirely trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to bring you close to God. So many of you that I talk to come from backgrounds where it's about church attendance or it's about doing a set of this and this and this and not doing a set of this and this and this. And my prayer desperately for you is that you would get a fresh revelation of grace and mercy, that you would get a, a, a disconnected from that stuff. Although I'm glad you're here and I want you to be here. We want you to be able to revere God. But if this is all you're doing, punching in a clock, punching out, yep, I did my thing to be close to God, but you're not spending time with him throughout the week. You're not in his word. You're not reading. You're not studying. You're not applying. That's how you build that relationship with him. That's how you stay close to him. You can't do it by just checking in and checking out and not doing some stuff and do doing some. You do it by a relationship. You do it by connection with your heavenly father. So my prayer for you is, is that if you haven't begun to follow Jesus, that you would do that today, that you begin right there. Jesus did everything for you. There is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can add to his work. He completed it at the cross. And we follow him because we believe a moment in time occurred where he died in our place. And he rent that veil in two so that we were no longer separated from God and we didn't have to go any longer through the religious system, through the rites and the practices and all the stuff that gets in people's ways. And if that's you today, if that's been your experience, you can be free of that and you can put your trust in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. It's the best decision you could make. So I'm just going to ask you if you would to just bow your hearts with me today. Nobody looking around. This is between you and your Heavenly Father. Maybe you've been here for the last six weeks and you've been hearing week after week after week how Jesus is better. And today is your day to begin to follow this one who will forever be a priest. He'll be our high priest. But you've never actually said, yes, Jesus, I put my faith in you. Not my past and not my best efforts. I put my faith and my trust in what you did at the cross. And I want to pray for you today. Nobody looking around. This is just between you and God. But I want to pray for you. So if that's you, I want to just invite you to just raise up your hand so that I can pray with you and for you today. Is there anybody here in this place that says, I want to put my faith in Jesus today? Maybe it's a first time. Maybe it's a recommitment. Maybe it's been a while since you've been in a place where you could hear this kind of a message of hope and your confidence is not in your best efforts. It's not in your family tree. It's in your personal putting trust in Jesus. God sees your hand today and I'm going to pray for you. Now, here's the truth. I can't, I can't do that for you. You have to put your faith in Jesus yourself. So I'm going to pray and I want to encourage you to follow along some way, somehow in your own words. 
You can put your hands back down. God has seen those hands. But those of you who raised your hands, if you'll just right there in your seat, just pray with me today in your own way, in your own words. Jesus, I don't want to trust in my ability. I don't want to trust in my ability to just be good enough to follow a set of lists, a list of do's and don'ts. I don't want to put my, my trust in my background and my family tree and the fact that I might come from a good family. I want to put my trust in you, Jesus. And I ask you to forgive me of the sin in my life, of the mistakes that I've made. I want to ask you to forgive me of those and I acknowledge that I need you. And so by faith, I trust in you. By faith, I ask you to rescue me, to save me, to redeem me, and I offer you my life. I submit myself to you. I humble myself before you, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing stuff that's hurt me, that's hurt others. And I want you to fill me with your peace, with your joy, with your righteousness. I'm asking you to lead my life, Lord. And be the one who intercedes for me for the rest of my days. Be my high priest. I choose today to follow you, Jesus. That's the way that you begin to follow God. That's the way you begin to get close to God as you talk to Jesus like that and then you get some help. And that's why we exist as a church to help you to begin to follow him. So if that's you today, if you've begun that relationship with Christ today, there are ways that you can begin. We have stuff to help you with that. I'll talk about that in a little while. But for the rest of us in this place, we know that we need to get closer to our Heavenly Father. We know we've been following Jesus, but maybe this summer we've gotten lax in having time with him intentionally set aside and he's not here to condemn us he's not here to beat us over the head he is here today to offer us a way back offer us hope offer us his forgiveness his peace and his joy so I'm going to invite you to stand with me all over this room we're going to close and we're going to sing some songs. This is a chance for you to respond. This altar is open. There will be people out on either side to pray with you, to pray for you. Maybe you want to talk, come and talk to Jesus about something else that has nothing to do with what we've talked about here today. But you want to come and you want to talk to Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that. Come find a place to kneel and make some decisions, make some commitments about coming closer, drawing close to God. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church.